from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York. It's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who, after moving from the Dominican Republic to Queens at the age of eight, starred as a baseball player in the shadow of Shea Stadium at Newton High School in Elmhurst. He was drafted by the Oakland Athletics in the 14th round, 342nd overall of the 1978 Major League Draft. His playing career featured stints in the minor leagues as well as stints in the leagues in both the Dominican Republic and Italy. He became baseball's first Hispanic general manager in 2002 when appointed vice president and general manager by the Montreal Expos. He served as the general manager of the Mets and the San Diego Padres and is currently serving as an ambassador for the New York Mets. It is a pleasure to welcome the man who selected Jacob deGrom in the ninth round of the 2010 draft, the one and only Omar Minaya Sports Talk New York. Hey, Omar, how you doing? I'm doing good. How's it going, big guy? How's always, everything? Always doing great. Always great. Always great to speak to you as well. And before we talk about how front offices across baseball prepare for the week of the trade deadline. We just wanted to touch on a little bit about your background, as I don't know how many people know how good a baseball player you actually were. You were an Iron Horse Award winner, which goes to New York's best athlete in each sport. During your four years in Newton, you led the team in RBIs, home runs for three years, had batting averages of 406, 431, 530, and 488. But the thing that impressed your coach, Warren Albert, the most was your leadership skills. So where does your leadership foundation come from? Well, I think a lot has to do with um, just, uh, you know, uh, I always want to say go back to your parents, but it's just your parents teach you to uh, try to do everything right, to be able to treat others the way you want to be treated. Uh, and I think you just, you know, uh, growing up in New York, growing up in the schoolyards of New York, you learn uh, to um, to bring people together, or you or you are involved in um, in you know putting games together, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, but I just think that you're kind of just uh, something that you uh, I think you, know, you try you try to care for others and you try to bring try to do the right things, and that's really what for me is sometimes what leadership is. So you had scholarship offers from South Carolina, Mississippi, Nevada, St. John's, and Lamar University. Why did you choose to go directly into pro ball as opposed to those colleges? Well, I think really it was a dream of mine to play professional baseball. Uh, well, you know, uh, growing up, um, all of us, I think, have a dream uh, at that time um, to be able to play professional baseball, uh, to be able to uh, get a little bit of money as a signing bonus and be able to share that money and provide for your family. Uh, my goal was always to uh, to play in the major leagues. Uh, uh, and to play professional baseball. So it was the opportunity was given there. I was very fortunate. Uh, there was a scout uh, by the name of Ralph DeLulo, a guy from Patterson, New Jersey, a uh, legendary uh, scout from Jersey that uh, took me on as a, you know, drafted me and signed me and and guided me. And uh, so um, it, it was at the time, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to help my family and I wanted to play pro ball. The only thing that, that like bums me out about that is because you were both an outfielder and catcher in high school and had you get gotten to go to St. John's, you probably would have been the catcher for that legendary Frank Viola, Ron Darling game, and that would have been pretty awesome. It would have been one of those full circle moments for sure later in your career. 
Well, that was a good team. We used to play against those guys. To play, I faced Frankie Viola. I think Frankie was from East Meadow. Uh, faced Johnny Franco, who was in that team. I remember some of those guys. Ronnie Nacario, uh, who ended up being a, a great basketball coach, still is a basketball coach at Cardoso, one of the winningest coaches in the public school history. So a lot of those guys we would play. I, I used to play with the uh, the Flushing Tigers, uh, and um, and we were they were playing with the Long Island Bats, but. We had a lot of friendship, a lot of uh, competitive games, and you're right. I remember uh, hearing about Ronnie Darling and the great job and the great games that they, uh, him and, and I believe Viola matched up, uh, and I believe it was in St. John's that game. Yeah. So we mentioned your short-lived live career in the minor leagues as well as the stints in the Dominican Republic in Italy. As injuries derailed your road to the majors, what did those stops add to your talent evaluation skills and baseball skills playing in, th- in those foreign leagues? Oh, I think they, they, they helped me a lot. I think what it does, it helped me a lot in opening up about the game as far as learning about the game, learning about people, learning about, you know, for me, one of my biggest stops was playing in Europe, playing in Italy, learning different cultures, learning different people, learning different, uh, uh, you know, language. Uh, opening up and, 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 and really earlier on as the game became more and more diverse, as you notice, look at now, you see the game, the great internationalism of the game. When you look at the All-Star game, look at the great players. The game is really uh, not only baseball, but look at basketball. What happened today with France being in the United States? I think it was an early introduction to what sports was going to be, um, you know, in the nineties, two thousands, and beyond. And I was able to, but not only the sports part, but just to be able to form a different. Um, you know, a relationship with people, be open-minded about things and, and be able to interact and, and, and adjust. So you also acted as a general manager for a Texas Rangers-sponsored team in the Dominican Republic. You're instrumental in the signing of players such as Sammy Sosa, Juan Gonzalez, and Ivan Rodriguez. What impressed you about those players at such an early age, and did they meet or exceed your expectations as major leaguers? Well, they definitely exceeded my expectations uh, as a major leaguers because really, you know, I was a young scout at the time and, you know, really, you know, um, I, I, I was just learning along the way. Yes, I have an inkling for seeing talent, but, you know, at that time, I would have never thought those guys were going to be that great. Uh, so to me, you know, uh, what I did see in them was the ability. They just had something different than the other kids that we were, grad- what we were recruiting. Either they were... They were looser. They would do something, maybe throw the ball harder, run faster, or hit the ball farther. Uh, but the way they did it, they did it easy. They did it uh, they had easy strength, um, and they were fluid. And uh, I was very fortunate to learn, like I mentioned to you before, about uh, um, Ralph DeLulo, but also guys like Sandy Johnson, Brian Lamb, uh, you know, who's an area scout who kind of gave me an opportunity. Those guys, I was very fortunate to have great mentors to uh, learn to what what to look for uh, in, in players. So your success with Texas leads to a position on the staff of the New York Mets where you work your way up to assistant general manager behind Steve Phillips. You play a big role for that team's late 90s success. You then became the first Hispanic to hold the general manager position in Major League Baseball when you left the Mets in early 2002 to accept the general manager position with the Expos. So a couple of questions here. First, what does this distinction mean to you and then secondly, you, ma- you mentioned the diversity in baseball these days, but it's been 19 years since you were the first you know, general manager. There hasn't been a lot of Hispanic GMs over the years. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, uh, <laughs> I'd like to remember answer you, answer your first question, but let me see how I go about this. <laughs> uh, first of all, it meant a lot to me because at the time, you know, I was given an opportunity. I started off as an area scout. I was a coach in the Gulf Coast League, and then worked my way up to be um, uh, the general manager through the New York Mets, meaning uh, being an assistant with Steve and learned along the way. I learned from Tom Grieve. I learned from Bob, uh, other general managers that I have. I learned from uh, uh, Doug Melvin, who was a great, great, and Steve Phillips, we worked together. Uh, and then, of course, being the first Hispanic, that meant a lot because you know what it is. It's just, you know, I was fortunate the commissioner of baseball, Buck Thiele, gave me, he put me in that position and gave me that opportunity, you know. Uh, no, that meant that hopefully you can give others opportunities and others can look and say, hey, I, you know, there's not only a Hispanic kid, but a kid from New York, any kid from Queens or Bronx or New York, any inner city kid can be, hey, look, this guy did it, you know, a bunch of, you know, went to PS19 and I can do it. So that, that kind of meant a lot to me, not only because I'm Hispanic, but because of where I came from. Uh, that being said, uh, the, you know, there have not been others, but I believe Al Avila has been uh, the other one that has been is a Hispanic who's with the Detroit Tigers. And I believe there are others that are out there given that hopefully will be given the opportunities and they'll look at myself and they'll look at Al and say, hey, you know, these guys did it and uh, there they will be opportunities for them. I do believe that, you know, uh, I'm very excited about the youth uh, uh, as far as diversity uh, that that we have in the game you know there's a, there's a lot of talented young guys out there and hopefully they'll just you know stay positive and hopefully that opportunities will happen to them. so after your time with the Expos you return to the Mets this time as general manager you lead them to the 2006 National League Championship your fingerprints are all over the 2015 team as a general manager in baseball what is the the one accomplishment you're most proud of Wow great question great question I mean I don't know if there's one. I will tell you what, just leading that Expos team um, to be able to have, be competitive those years in 2002 and three, to be able, when I, when I, when I was first uh, given the job at the commissioner, we had no employees and we had to build an, an organization from bottom, really for nobody. And they had to do it in, this, in, 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 in a very uh, quick, quick time and be able to sustain that situation because it was somewhat volatile because of the time there was a the potential the team can be contracted to be able to uh, put bring that together to be able to work put a group of people together and really i don't know if it's been myself but just the the group i still talk to tony siegel who my assistant and tony tavares who was the president and all of us feel that's one of one of the most fun jobs that we have one of the most difficult job but one of the most fun jobs together all right, so let's talk a little bit about the baseball trade deadline as it's rapidly approaching. What, what's the timeline like for a team? And obviously it, it's changed because they, you keep on adding different layers of playoffs, but what's the timeline where a team has to determine whether a, they're a buyer and seller? There is no timeline. It's just a matter of a feel. You know, you got to have a feel. and You got to feel your team out. You got to feel how, you know, this, this team... Sometimes you you may be leading and you say I, I don't think this team has it. You know it's uh, you know there is not a specific timeline. I, I will tell you that you build up to the last. You look at those last the next two weeks or go into the in, into the uh, the trading deadline. You see where you are in the standing. You see where how you're playing, and you really get a gut feel of how your team is and what are your weaknesses and, and all those things. So. A specific timeline, you know, but I always go, but you got, you know, you, you want to look as close as you can. I think those those last two weeks before the deadline are weeks that will kind of give you an idea 
uh, of where you want to go uh, with, with your team. Omar, this is A.J. Carter. As the trade deadline approaches, teams who feel they're in contention always balance the pressure to win now versus having to mortgage the future to make a trade that improves the ball club. You made one of those trades in 2002 when you got Bartolo Colon but gave up prospects Cliff Lee, Grady Sizemore, Brandon Phillips, and Lee Stevens, especially Lee but also Sizemore and Phillips who wanted to product in major league careers. What were the dynamics that led up to that trade? If you had to do it over again, would you have made it? Oh, yeah, definitely made it again. And that wasn't done in the trend line. That was done, I believe, in June, if I'm not mistaken. And I do believe at the time it would be considered, first of all, that what made the, the key thing to that was that the team was going to get contracted at the end of the year. So if the team is going to get contracted, what good were those players going to be to you if they were in double A and A ball? There was not much value because you're going to be contracted. They were going to be part of the draft. So to me, to do it again, without a doubt, because we and we were in contention, and we ended up being in contention in September. So to me, and that was a situation, that wasn't a long-term situation. There was no long-term for the Expos at that time, at that moment. So what good is long-term prospects if you're not going to be around? Right. That's interesting. Now, another so, thing that, that's come into play is every single baseball team has an analytics department. When you start... Um, putting things together, how far in advance do you need to, to start? You know, you said there is no timeline for a trade deadline, but realistically, you know, when you start having these conversations, you have to go back to the analytics department and say, all right, we've got this in the fire. You know, how does this project going forward? Yeah, I think you're always, you're always, listen, so the, when I say there's no timeline, you make a decision to say we're going to give, give, to, to make a trade or be buyers or sellers, that's a total different than what's going on on the on, uh, uh, behind the scenes. You are always looking for trades to make. You know, if you are an active general manager, you are you are pushing your scouts, you're pushing your data people, you're connecting with other people, always to look for opportunities, up windows of opportunities to do something. Okay, there's always so your guys are always engaged, and I will tell you that sometimes trades are done. That really done on the 31st, but they probably were trades that were not done last winter. But they were the, the work had already been done, and for whatever reason, we didn't get the trade done on the trading deadline, or they went to winter meetings, or that. So now all you do is pick up from all the information that you had back then. So back in the day, you're looking at a player, and you'd send a major league scout out, and they'd look, they'd watch the player, they send back a report. Today, you have the analytics department. Have the growth in analytics analytics reduce the importance of the major league scouts or is it still a balance how does that work no i think it's a balance i think the listen everybody can do it the way they want to but i do believe the white smart teams the way to do it right is information all you can do is getting different type of information i think this day and age i think all the data information that you're getting new data that's being created i think it's all good for the game i think that the, the traditional evaluator is still there you know, it's all, it's all depending on how much you want to use it. I'm of the belief that you use both, and I do believe that you have a lot of young, uh, young, you know, intelligent uh, player. Uh, I don't want to say kids, but just personnel that uh, that is able to give you new ideas, new perspective, new, you know, data. This is what it says, and this is why you can measure. This is, and believe me when I say that data can be measured more at the major leagues than maybe it's measured now when you're doing a draft because you have more data, we have more volume of information for more predictability of what 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 the outcome is going to be. But you also have the you have the hardcore traditional evaluator to see what how the body is doing, what things are doing that may not be there, that may not be quantified. 
So to piggyback on that, one thing that data you, you can't quantify is team chemistry. You take a look locally at this New York Met team, okay? And, and there's definitely something going on with this team, whether it be the bench mob or, or just when J.D. Davis comes back from injury, how he hits the run, get, you know, ground running. Brendan Nimmo's been back. Do you run the risk? You're in first place. Yes, there are definite needs. Do you run the risk of trading a guy that might even be a role player, like a Pilar, for example, it, packaging him in a, a trade to get maybe a pitcher or maybe to get that another star? Do you run the risk of, of ruining team chemistry, even though analytically it might be a great trade? It all depends on who it is. You know what I'm saying? I do believe the team in 2015, I know when the team, and just looking at it from a distance, I believe they brought in the guy Johnson. I believe it was Kelly Johnson Kelly from Johnson. the Braves. And they brought in, uh, who was the, there was a, a, another guy came from Braves, uh, pinch hitter, right-handed bat. I think they brought those two names in. And I, I just, Julio Franco? No, no, it wasn't Julio. No, he, 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 he was a big, a great yeah, chemistry guy. Yeah. Julio was big, you know? Yeah, was... Uh, I believe it was, oh, my God. You know, it was a whole, yeah. some pinch hitter, infielder guy that bad that I know was great. Yeah, to know. So uh, so that being said, you, you, you know, you have to do, you, you do have to be careful on who are some of the guys that you are extracting. Uh, but, you know, this time of year, you got to put everybody on the table. Um, it, you know, it's just you got to measure the uh, the value that you're going to get from uh, from the impact, from the historical impact, too. But it's a great question because you do have to get certain guys. Like, look, for us, in his own way, Andy Chavez was a big guy in the clubhouse. He didn't do nothing but smile and just laugh, and people loved him. He was just a great defensive player. You know, when I went those teams in 06, and, you know, the same thing, thing we had guys, I remember once, uh, I believe in the, the year, in those years, 2000, there were certain guys that, that meant a lot in the clubhouse, you know, guys that were, you know, Lenny Harris was a big guy in the clubhouse for those teams. So you have to be careful who you're extracting, but he also be, can be bringing in real, real good guys too. So how much of a role does ownership play in a trade? Is it just the financial implications or do they also weigh in what we call baseball decisions? Well, each ownership group is different. You know, there are ownership groups that are more involved than others. So each, there is not, you know, as far as the financial, um, the financial component, I think that there will be a large part at most ownership. Everybody, you know, all ownerships, you know, that that's an area that they you always have to be able to run through them. As far as beyond that, each each group is different. By, by the way, uh, we have the answer of who that player was, courtesy of uh, former Met Barry Lyons. It was Jose Uribe. I was just looking at that. Yep, that's right. Juan Uribe. It's Juan Uribe. Juan Uribe. Juan Uribe. Thank you, Barry Lyons, a loyal listener. So good stuff from Barry. Um, so with Francisco Lindor on the IL, and you have a player like Trevor Story available, possibly as a rental, could you see a scenario where the Mets trade for him, play him at shortstop until Lindor comes back, then move him over to second base or third base? Is, is that something that general managers look at just you know that all right we have a need now but we, we're not going to have that need long term and then we can shift them over here is that something that's also always on the table well i i mean look i i that but those those scenarios are very very uh you know how can i say this uh you know when you're when you're training for big players that are rentals and you're gonna have to give up a lot those things in this day and age in baseball become less and less Interesting. So a lot of talk here in New York, uh, talk radio, was that, you know, th as the, the trade deadline gets 
closer, the price for certain players go up. But then there's another school of thought that, you know, once a team sees that, all right, you know, we might have overshot what we thought the market is, the price comes down. Which school of thought are you on the side of? Well, I I think, you know, I'm I'm of the belief that when you get a deal that you like, do it. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) you know, look, and deals are done. So both I'm always always the belief if you try to do too good of a deal, you'll never get a deal done. So on an entirely different note, as a GM, how much impact do you put on, let's say, a Michael Conforto, who's playing now, it's his last year of his contract, next year will be his one shot at his big free agency contract. Obviously, the season is not going the way he would like it heading into that. How much do you weigh, you know, the mental fatigue that might be going through his mind for this contract when it comes to deciding whether you're going to re-sign him, how much money you're going to re-sign him, and what the market's going to bear for a player like like his skills? Look, I think uh, guys like that have a history already of performing. You know what I'm saying? I do believe that Michael is is going to get hot. I think he's going to get hot. I do believe that he's uh, he's he's proven it for uh, for years. Uh, and as far as what what the general, you know, what's going to happen as far as the signing and all that, I, you know, it's I think you're going to just going to have to wait till the end of the year and, and look that only look at one year, but look at the uh, the volume of work that he's done. On a broader issue, back to you, you were brought back to the Mets by Sandy Alderson and moved into an increased role when he stepped back because of his cancer diagnosis. How close was your working relationship with Sandy? And given that he took control again after the ownership change, how surprised were you to be let go only hours after, after Steve Cohn finalized his purchase of the team? Well, listen, I, 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 I'm, uh, when I, I, I have a long history with, uh, with Sandy, and, uh, and I say this, that, you know, my, uh, you know, when I came back, I was, uh, you know, I think when I came back, it was, uh, for me, it was, uh, uh, a great time to be, you know, with the Met family. I'm still with the Met family. I'm very happy to be with the Met family because I grew up with the Mets and I've always been with the Mets. And uh, so, you know, you do what you. Uh, this is my new role as an ambassador. I really enjoy doing it, and I love, uh, you know, I just love, love, love being part of the Mets family. You know, to piggyback on that, given that you've worked for some ownership groups that were not some of the biggest spenders, i.e., Montreal, uh, the Wilpons at times. How much would you have liked the opportunity to be the GM under an owner like Steve Cohen? Well, I could tell you that you know when I was under, when I was there with the uh, in Montreal, you know, yes, Montreal, we did not have the the financial resources because at the time, of, as you know, we were restricted, but we made it work. We worked out, you know, we did a, you know, the amazing thing about those years in Montreal, there was two young kids that were in the dugout all the time. They were the clubhouse. There was a guy by the name of Tatis Jr. and the guy by the name of Guerrero. What a special experience that was. Uh, yeah, so, that, you know, but yes, really happy. And I will tell you, when I was general manager here with uh, with the Mets, I was always giving uh, whatever I needed uh, to make the team better. So, to me, that was, you know, I, I, I says, I, you know, go get Pedro, go get uh, Beltra, go get Delgado. I was always, uh, you know, given the ability to go improve the team. You know, they talk, they talk about contraction when you were in Montreal. Now they're talking about baseball coming back to Montreal. How do you feel about that and that possibility? 
Well, I, I, I think, uh, listen, I think it's a great baseball city. It's a great, I know a lot of people think of Canada or think of Montreal because of the Canadians, a great hockey team. I can tell you it is a great baseball city, great baseball fan, historical baseball fan. Let's not forget the Montreal Royals. Let's not forget Jackie Robinson, Roberto Clemente. The history of baseball in Montreal has been great. If I'm not mistaken, they might have been the first franchise to get 2 million people uh, when uh, in, in, those, er, er, in the 80s. So, I hope that they do get a team because my experience with the fans in Montreal, the people there, everything about Montreal was wonderful. So last question before we let you go. Gut feeling, do you think the Mets have one big move up their sleeve before the trade deadline comes and passes? I do believe that. I think, look, I think I think they're in a very good position to, to um, uh, you know, we're based upon what I'm listening to, what teams are out there, what teams are kind of selling. Um, I, I, I think I, I know there's going to be some hard work done. I already see the, the, the small trades that are big trades. Like for me, I call small trade big trades. The Hill just a great pickup. It's a very good pickup, yeah. and you just saw it, and you saw what happened today. Uh, I do believe that we still have a time to go this year. I believe the trading deadline is the 30th. It used to be the 31st. Uh, we still have time to go, and uh, I, I think that this, you know, I, I do believe that there is going to. There's going to be a way to improve the team. And don't get me wrong, it doesn't have to be big. It could be two small moves that make the team that, that, that could become big. You know what yes. I'm saying? That's what I'm saying. It does not have to be a big move. It just has to be a small move. Guys like Uribe Johnson, yeah. Tyler Clifford that year right. also was huge in that as well. So you're right. Sometimes the little moves are the ones. I mean, Kelly Johnson had some huge home runs. So did right. Uribe He's down big. the stretch. Yeah. So, Omar, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and, and it's always a pleasure. Literally, I've now bumped into you, like, literally bumped into you three times at the stadium this season. Hope to see you tomorrow <laughs> during the oh. doubleheader at some point. Um, but thanks for coming on with us tonight and, and breaking down uh, the trade deadline. We love it. Okay, guys, thank you very much. Thank you got it. The one and only Omar Minaya.